<laughs> What's hey everybody? Up? Welcome to the Fast God Stuff Podcast, where we make biblical theology simple, practical, and fun so that we can love God and others more. I'm Conrad, and I still drive a 2001 Toyota Camry. Hmm. And I'm Jesse, and I once played drums for a Dutch rock band. Did you? Really? Yes. <laughs> We're just two guys trying to follow Jesus, hanging out in the studio with our Bibles and... We take just 30 minutes to chat about a theological topic and renew our minds with the good things of Christ. It's fast, God. So, Conrad, what are we talking about today? We're going over movies with Christian themes. Two, three, four, movies with Christian themes. Movies with Christian themes. Movies with Christian themes. We both ran out of breath at the same time. I was trying to outdo you. (laughs) So why are we talking about movies with Christian themes? Well, everyone has a worldview that defines the ideas they convey. All movies and TV shows do the same thing. And as Christians, we should be able to compare and contrast what art and culture says versus the biblical Christian worldview. Secondly, many movies borrow universal themes from the Bible, either knowingly but often unknowingly. So today we're going to go over some of our favorite movies and compare and contrast them to Christian ideas. Nailed it. Awesome. So what's one of the movies that you like that has some good Christian themes in it? So the first movie that I'll go over today is uh, M. Night Shyamalan's movie Signs with Mel Gibson. Creepy. So yeah, the, um, have you seen it? Yes. Okay, I love it. Um, the Christian theme is pretty obvious in this movie. Uh, and, real, and the theme is that everything happens for a reason. But the question that we have to ask is, well, what reason are we talking about? And uh, everything really is a sign that points to a reason. So Mel Gibson is basically a reverend who lost his wife in a car wreck. Due, and due to that loss, he lost his faith in God as well. But he, he still believes that God exists, but he no longer puts his faith in him uh, to the point to where he actually rebukes his son for wanting to say grace before that one prayer when they're, they're in that basement hiding. And after his son has his asthma attack out of, anger he tells god that he hates him so he's really like lost it so then the aliens attack and then you know at the end he's uh he realizes that seemingly random events throughout the movie in his life uh led to saving the remaining family from this alien attack so at first this seems like a lot of uh, a lot like the story of joseph who also endured a bunch of trials so that god could not only um uh save joseph's family but also the nation and a bunch of other nations too so it seems like really like Romans 8.28 is at play here, um, where it says all things work together for the good of them that love God and who are called according to his purpose. Right on. But when you say, quote, everything happens for a reason, unquote, what reason are you talking about? There could be a, like a bunch of different reasons. So like look, looking back at Joseph's story, uh, when we see, uh, we see God's overall plan, the reason as God's overall, uh, overall plan of redemption by preserving the ancestral line of Christ, by establishing the nation of Israel. So the reason is God-focused. And then in Romans 8.28 and other verses that are like it, God's plan is for the sanctification of the believer. That is God's reason for suffering and all, all events is for the sanctification. Making, uh, and sanctification is really just making people more like Christ, which is another God-focused reasons. However, if we look at Signs, the movie, 
on the surface, this seems looks looks like it fits into the biblical theme, um, because after seeing the signs, he regains his faith. But if you think about it, he only had as much faith as the doubting disciple Thomas, who only believed after the events were over. And it doesn't take anything to believe what's already in front of you. But to have real faith, you must have you must believe the promise of God that everything happens for His reason before the events unfold. And that's a good point because I hear a lot of people say, even people who don't have like a well-formed atheistic worldview, everything happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. But we never ask, what is that reason and why are those things happening? Yeah. It just seems comforting to be able to say, well, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. And if you're saying that everything happens for a reason, something has to be out there defining that reason. Exactly. And you'll hear people talking about karma. Well, you have to ask, what is this thing that defines actions and motives as good or evil? and then compares what we do against its own moral standard, its moral law. Right. And then it also has to have the causal power to move events in the universe to act in or against your favor. So when somebody says everything happens for a reason, it presupposes that there is this higher consciousness that is defining what that reason actually is, and then it consciously causes events to move towards that predefined reason. Man, you just dropped the presuppositional bomb. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you're right. It's somebody is, is basically presuming that there is a higher authority that has an objective measuring stick that they're using against exactly. everybody. Yeah. Truth is no longer relative or it's not post-truth. So just by saying everything happens for a reason, you're saying a lot, actually, about yeah. what you believe or what you think you believe. You're basically um, assuming theism, but a lot of people don't actually realize that there's presupposing theism in that they just kind of say it to make themselves feel better. Right. But for that to work, there has to be a God that objectively says, this is what's right. And this is what's wrong. And then I am causing these things to happen for a reason. So how do you see that play out in signs? Okay. So, um, really the application and really this gets to the application. So let's ask, what is the application in all this? The application is that you can't see signs for anything other than what God has given us reason for for his reasons, which is really our sanctification, because your interpretation of signs would be completely subjective, like you losing your job and uh, at the same time tickets go on sale to California. That's not a sign that God wants you to move to California. That was just a complete coincidence. So doors opening and closing could easily be opened by coincidence, misinterpretation, or by Satan. And when Satan opens a door, what is that called? That's just called temptation. Right. So Satan can easily cause signs to happen and then just, just to lead you astray. So here's the 15-second Fast God Stuff summary in all of this. Signs is about someone who regains his faith after seeing signs showing him that there was a reason to his suffering. However, our faith is squarely based in God's word, which already tells us the reason for our suffering. And that reason is our sanctification. So when something bad happens, know that God is using that to grow you spiritually. So don't look to signs because we have his word. And don't look to signs, just be obedient to his word. <laughs> well, that's mine. <laughs> so this is the you? Christian Themes and Movies, also known as the We Spoil a Bunch of Movies podcast for oh, you. <laughs> I guess we should have said that at the beginning of the podcast. Okay, so what is your movie with Christian themes? Two words, Conrad. Harry Potter. Oh, are you, I have yeah. to ask, are you down with the HP? I am. I am. Well, I haven't read the books. I've read part of the books, but I've seen all the movies. Yeah, that's where it's at. Times. Yeah. yeah. The movies are fantastic. So 
This is a story, of course, about a boy wizard. And in Harry Potter, the character himself has a lot of comparisons with Jesus. So he's not what we would theology nerds call like a type of Christ, meaning that he's exactly everything that Jesus is in the scriptures. But there's enough stuff in there to kind of make the comparison very real and to suggest that kind of relationship. So Harry Potter, he's a hero faith. He's a wounded hero. He's a modest hero. And he's ready to sacrifice himself completely on behalf of others in opposition of he who must not be named, who is... Voldemort. Yes. Uh, who is the personification of evil. So here's what's really interesting to me. There's a lot of unique things that kind of draw this comparison between Harry Potter, who he is and how he behaves, and Jesus. Again, they're not exact, but they give some inference. So for instance, two really quick are, one, their ancestry. So in the Bible, Jesus is linked to God and humanity. He kind of has a dual role mm-hmm. in existence. And for Harry Potter, he's linked to both muggles and wizards. This is something I never thought I'd be saying on a podcast, oh, talking about muggles. Okay. So is this kind of dual nature yeah. in a sense, mm-hmm. different essences. And then in terms of enemies, Jesus is clearly the object of Satan's wrath and attention. And Harry Potter is the object of Voldemort's wrath and attention. Mm-hmm. But the main thing for me that draws a really interesting Christian thematic presentation in these movies is toward the end of the whole series, as we're going through, we're getting the sense that Harry is somebody really special. And in fact, in the Deathly Hallows, He's actually referred to as the chosen one. So here he's set up as somebody representative, almost like a federal head, if we're going to use theological language. So in the scriptures, Jesus actually asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so Christ is an official title. It means anointed, one separate, one who's actually chosen. So all of this is leading up. And so we have Harry Potter at the very end of the story He dies voluntarily, just Mm -hmm. as Christ did. He actually presents himself to be crucified, more or less, in a sense, by Voldemort, executed. And then just as Christ did, he rises from the dead to basically administer the final blow to the prince of darkness himself. So I see in this all kinds of wonderful parallels where we can see something about the character, the person of Jesus. So I forget, um, was it necessary that Harry Potter die so that Voldemort Voldemort could be killed. Yeah, absolutely. So he's got to prove this bond of love that essentially the love, the sacrifice of giving oneself up was worthwhile. That was the only thing that was going to end up defeating pure evil in the end. Okay. And so there's a lot of parallels there, of course. There's also this amazing thing for me that people love Harry Potter. I mean, people love Harry Potter. They're drawn to the story almost inexplicably. And that for me is because this movie demonstrates that all stories where we want a big hero who is bigger than life itself, who can come and right the wrongs, not just do justice, but like kick evil in the teeth. Mm -hmm. We want that. And all those stories are just derivatives. They're just different versions of the story of Jesus Christ who came to do that for us. So I love that. It gives me so much appreciation for who he is and what he's accomplished. So here's the kind of things I take away from a movie like this. Uh, The first is that it reminds us that as Jesus said in John chapter 15, Greater love really has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. So that sacrifice is a real thing. Yeah, Loving others is the way in which you show that Christ has actually transformed your heart. And the second is to actually go about and try to sit down for a second and measure your love and measure how much you love something or especially someone by inconvenience. Because love separated from inconvenience is not really genuine. Mm -hmm. So it's a good way to test, like, am I really loving somebody by being inconvenienced? I'm willing to give up and self-sacrifice something in return for showing them that I truly care about them. Yeah. And I like the greater love has no man, no one than this, because um, it just kind of shows that even 
because God has written his law on our hearts, as in Romans 1, uh, that Romans 1 says, people, like, it just, it just comes out in everyone's art. Exactly. Even if they don't give God the credit for it, um, it's, it's, it's already written in their hearts, and it naturally comes out in their art. And that's why we're so quick to identify with the story. We, yeah. Even though it seems fantastical and there's a lot of fantasy here, we identify with the raw emotion, yeah. with the actual relationships that are happening here. Mm-hmm. And that is real. And that's because God has created us to love each other, to be with one another, and to serve one another. Yeah. So that's what's for real. Yeah. So not Christian or non-Christian, it's already, it's inherent in us to actually be attracted to a universal truth that God has defined as greater love has no one than this. Pre-sub. Awesome. Yeah. Amen. So here's the 15 second fast God stuff summary. The Christian themes in Harry Potter's story help us to long for heaven, remind us of the invisible world and show us the holy bravery of Jesus in his triumph over sin and the grave. The grave. So hit me with another movie that you think has some sweet Christian themes. So this next movie is one of my favorite movies, movies of all time. It is Sunshine by Danny Boyle in 2007. Now, this is actually an odd choice for our discussion because the script was actually written by an atheist. So in this movie, in the near future, the sun is dying and the crew is traveling on a spacecraft to essentially deliver a bomb to reignite the sun. Uh, and, but they are actually the second mission to do so because the first mission failed to, due to unknown circumstances. They don't know what happened to the, the, the previous mission. So the writer intended the sun to be a metaphor for the face of God. And as an atheist, he wrote it merely to explore man's unending fascination with this imagined God. However, the director, Danny Boyle, took this idea and ran with it. And he presupposed that God is real and that the sun is a metaphor for a real God. So the movie ultimately explores mankind's differing reactions to coming closer and closer into proximity with God. Because remember, they're just getting closer and closer to the sun, and they essentially just have to go into the sun. Right. Okay, so the, the movie makes this quite clear at the beginning by starting with a really weird scene uh, for people who aren't paying attention. So there's this crew member in the observatory room of the ship that has a window that faces the sun. So he's looking directly into the sun, intent on gaining some new understanding of it. And so he keeps on lowering the power of this artificial veil to, in, in order to expose himself to greater and greater intensities of the sun, bathing himself in, this, in, the, in, in its light and its beauty. So this character, who I'll call the Seeker, tolerates as much burning and peeling as he can without being irreparably, uh, irreparably bur- uh, burned or blinded. So the veil reminds me um, of how after like Moses was exposed to the glory of God, um, that the reflection of God's glory off of his face was too intense for the Israelites to bear. So Moses actually had to wear a veil um, because it was just too much for everyone. It's hardcore. Yeah. And also, you know, it reminds me of the veil in the temple of God to, you know, protect us from his glory. So later on in the movie, we, we, we meet the protagonist. He's the guy from 28 Days Later, and he's also the scarecrow in, in Batman. Um, he's a scientist who has a recurring dream of himself falling into the sun. So during the course of the movie, we see that dream a few times as he, tr- as he tries to determine what it means. So in, we infer later that the sun is actually drawing the protagonist to itself. And then uh, in a later scene in the movie, uh, I'm skipping a whole lot of stuff. I'm just going to the, the relevant points. Later in the movie, the entire crew enters the observation room. And since we understand the met- metaphor at this point, we can conceptually replace the sun, uh, the sun room with a conceptual temple or, or like a church 
and then study people's reactions as if they were uh, listening to something like scripture being read or maybe a cross or something like that. So uh, they are, uh, there are immediate differences in the crew members' reactions um, to the sun. So a few of them uh, immediately get off the bench and move to the front of the room, and they sit down and gaze longingly into the sun. So these people are the true believers. Our seeker from the beginning of the movie, he's still in the back of the room, but he's still completely fascinated, has a smile on his face and everything. He wants to know God, but he doesn't, he doesn't quite understand him fully. Uh, this, the most dispassionately rational person, he's actually played by the Captain America uh, actor, he stares unemotionally at the sun. He's basically probably a, like a naturalist and can only see the goal of his mission, and he doesn't see the sun as anything more like uh, anything more than that. It doesn't, he doesn't see it as divine or anything. Uh, one member, uh, this is the most interesting one, I think, the one member of the crew can't even bring himself to look at the sun and he hangs his head in shame. And you're kind of like, what, what's the deal with that? Right. But later on, you find out that this guy was willing to sacrifice everyone else, including humanity, to save himself when this one mission goes bad. He tries to save himself. So he is basically like the sinner who knows his own guilt and can't look at God directly. He doesn't see God mm-hmm. as a savior. He basically sees God's, God as a judge. Uh, and he basically tries to become his own God and, tries to do, and he tries to do what he can to save himself. And then the protagonist, the guy who has the dreams of falling into the sun, is sitting there contemplating the sun and the meaning that it ho- he holds. He's just studying it. He's trying to figure out what's going on with, with the sun. Okay, and then later, something goes wrong, and the captain must fix something on the outside of the ship and must turn the heat shield in a certain direction to protect the main part of the ship as it turns. But it becomes clear that while he was able to fix it, he, he doesn't have enough time to make it back uh, to the ship before the ship turns in a way where the sunlight will hit him. And as all the other crew are freaking out over the radio as the captain is about to be annihilated by the light, he looks towards the sun, and then the seeker asks an important question. He asks, what do you see? What do you see? Wow, that's heavy. Yeah. So you, when you're watching this for the first time, you're like, what is the deal with this guy? And that's like the first time I was watching, like, this movie is not just a straight movie. There right. is a complete metaphor going on that I need to figure out. That's why I'm so fascinated with this movie. So um, later in the and it gets better. Later in the movie, they come across they actually come across the wreckage of the first failed mission. And remember, there were the second mission, and so there was another mission. And in in a, the twist, the captain of the first mission of the failed mission boards their ship and tries to sabotage the mission. So during his mission, when him and his crew were in like the sunroom that that you know the temple basically. He had a different experience than what these other crew members had. He had, and he had what he considered an epiphany. He came to believe that God not only spoke to him like when he was in the room, but that it is God's will that the sun die out and wipe out humanity. And basically, he basically says, who are we to uh, disobey God's will? The sun is dying. It's, that's God's will. We shouldn't go do anything against it. So he stops his mission. And in fact, he spends so much time in the temple room talking to the sun that his flesh becomes completely charred and he has essentially become a monster. The antagonist is really uh, is a good example of an extreme fundamentalist who fails to differentiate between, between God's causal will and God's permissive will. Meaning just because God permits something to happen, like our free will choices, doesn't mean that God caused these things to happen like our free will actions. And that it doesn't mean that our free will actions will always align with his moral will. So there's a couple different uh, usages for the word will. 
So many fundamentalists think that they are carrying out God's will while overlooking that their actions actually contradict his moral will. And just like the movie Signs, if you leave it up to individuals to interpret events as signs from God, you can come up to any conclusion that you want while still claiming it to be God's will. So that's exactly what this fundamentalist is doing. Okay, so towards the end of the movie, they are deep in the heart of the sun. The, the, The ship is going into the sun, and the sun is tearing the ship apart, and the protagonist detonates the payload as the sun is uh, and the sun is reignited and our protagonist's visions actually become reality as not only he discovers god but he comes directly face to face with god as the sun is being reignited he is bathed in light and beauty he is completely at peace and in awe of god's beauty complete smile on his face totally at peace then he reaches out his hand and touches the face of god and finally he's enveloped in light so it is probably the most beautiful philosophical artistic scene I've ever witnessed in a movie. Wow. It is powerful. Um, so what is the answer to the question, how does mankind respond to God? And what is the application in all this? So Romans 1 basically, we referred to it before, Romans 1 basically says that deep down, everyone knows that God exists. And people live their lives with a different reaction to this fact. Some people try to deny his existence with faulty logic or just out of emotion. And some people disagree with how he does things and reject him, like Mel Gibson and Signs. And others develop a romanticized idea of an all-forgiving God so they don't really have to change their behavior. Uh, others seek God and false religions by rejecting, by rejecting Christ, the very image and truth of God. And others seek an image of God within themselves. Uh, but according to Scripture, we must understand that the heart of man is inherently at war with God. Um, so we can, we can offer the gospel, but it is God who must change their hearts. Right on. I haven't seen this movie, and now I want to see this movie so bad. Yeah, um, you can just borrow uh, our DVD. Yes, it's movie amazing. night. And then just watch these key scenes multiple times, or just watch the movie multiple times. Where has this been all my life? It's amazing. So what is the 15-second Fast God Stuff summary? Romans 1 explains that everyone knows God exists, but there are many reactions to this knowledge. And as Christians, we must understand that people like certain ideas surrounding God, but not the full unveiled brightness of the truth of God namely his holiness and justice. When interacting with others, we must understand that one's reactions to God isn't just a logical response, but also an emotional and moral response. Knowing that, we must speak to them in love and pray that God, not us, illuminates their heart so that they can one day see the face of That is so good. My mind has been like thoroughly expanded right now. Awesome. Well, what is, how can you expand our mind? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked because you just chose an incredibly deep, really powerful movie. And so it seems only appropriate that I would talk about Home Alone. An equally powerful movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's equally moving and equally godly. So obviously Home Alone is that holiday classic where Kevin McAllister, played by Macaulay Culkin, is inadvertently left home alone while his family travels to France for Christmas. And thematically to me, there's so much in this movie that speaks of the prodigal son story. Okay. And it starts with the, from in the beginning, not in the beginning in the Bible, but in the beginning in the movie, that just came out really strange out of my <laughs> mouth. Um, there is a spiritual element because Kevin gets in trouble with his family and his mother says to him, well, maybe you should wish for another family. And uh. so he actually asked Santa that he would get another family. And so, of course, you know the rest of the story. The family disappears in a sense. They leave without him. They leave the country. And Kevin discovers that he can be completely self-sufficient. He's actually loving life. He's going around shopping. He's doing mm-hmm. all kinds of fun stuff on his own. 
He's conquering his enemies, which is like the furnace in the basement. He's standing up to his fears. He's living the dream. Until he basically, in the language of the prodigal son, comes to his senses. And he realizes that not only does he really miss his family and he wants them back, um, but he gets especially scared that he is all by himself when he realizes he's going he's gonna to have to defend the house against these really zealous burglars. Yeah. The crazy part, right? So in his desperation, for whatever reason, on Christmas Eve night, the night that he knows the burglars are about to take over the house, he goes walking around and he goes to church because he knows no other place where he can go and try to get some help. Do you remember this part in the movie where he goes to church? I've barely seen the movie. I've only seen clips. Oh my gosh. This is (laughs) just as good as sunshine. Actually, it's not, but it's probably not. So he goes to church and he's in the pew sitting there, really not knowing what to do. There's like a choir singing uh, Christmas carols. And he runs into his neighbor, which is this old dude named Old Man Marley. And he's this like grisly, big bearded, gruff, kind of intimidating looking old man who's always shoveling snow and very mysterious in the neighborhood. And he comes up, he sits next to, to Kevin. He's all cleaned up. He's wearing a suit and a tie. And he's like this Jesus-like character because the first thing he does is he starts to basically confront Kevin of his sin. He asks him if oh, yeah. he's been a good boy. <laughs> yeah. And he says, you know, where, where are you? Why are you all by yourself? Where's your family at? And so he prompts him into this movement of reconciliation, of realizing not only does he need to be forgiven, but he needs to make amends with his family, that they're one in the same, and that this man, old man Marley, acts as the impetus. But here's what's so crazy. So in that scene... Old man Marley actually at one point shakes Kevin's hand and the camera pans and there's this bandage on the outside of his hand. Really? And really? Yeah. And there's one other scene actually where we see his hand very dramatically portrayed. And it's a scene where Kevin has gone into the drugstore to buy a couple odds and ends because he feels like he's big man now. Yeah. And old man Marley comes in. He's wearing all his show snuggling, atti- shoveling attire. Not snuggling. That's not even a word. And he goes to buy a paper, and when he does so, he puts his hand down on the counter to, to put the, close the loose change underneath it. And for whatever reason, we see he has a bandage around his hand. It's bloodied on the outside, and then when he puts his hand down, we, the camera actually pans so you can see underneath the glass case. It's also bloody underneath, as yeah. if his hand was entirely pierced, pierced yeah. through. So there's definitely, whether or not that's intentional, there's this theme to that me that there's... intentional. There's this, no way that... You, it's crazy, right? Yeah, you, Home alone, people. Yeah. <laughs> Home alone. So he is the impetus, impetus again, for Kevin going and seeking out uh, reconciliation. What's funny is after that scene in the church, Kevin actually goes home right before preparing for the robbers, and he makes mac and cheese, and he prays. He actually prays. So it's, mm-hmm. it's so crazy. There's definitely a transition uh, in his life. Yeah. So here's one thing we can take away from this movie, and that is to reconcile and reinvest in our relationships, especially that have been neglected. Don't Mm -hmm. wait another day. Text, call, pick up with that person where you know you've left off and you should jump in. Yeah. So here's the 15 second Fast God stuff summary. So the Christian themes in Home Alone remind us that we are all contingent beings. We're selfish and restless until we find our rest in God. We are not at peace with our fellow man because we're not at peace with ourselves and we're not at peace with ourselves because we are not at peace with God. The guitar was off again. (laughs) So this has been a good reminder and exercise in studying the words people and culture say and the ideas behind them, because all ideas start with a worldview. And many times, these worldviews unknowingly borrow from universal Christian truths, because according to Romans 1 and 2, 1, deep down everyone knows God exists, And two, God has written his moral law onto everyone's hearts, as evidenced by our consciences. So God's truths of morality, justice, and love 
are borrowed and inserted into competing worldviews. So we must be aware of what people are saying so that we might be able to understand them better and see where they borrow from God so that we can find these commonalities in order to have a more effective dialogue with them and hopefully point them to God. Well, that's all the time that we have today, Conrad. Make sure you subscribe and rate the Fast God Stuff podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you like to podcast. Also, check out fastgodstuff.com for all kinds of content that will burn your face off. Don't look at the sun. Until next time, love God. Love others. That's that's it. it. Two, three, four. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. You're so awesome. It's my turn. gonna do the harmony i'm like he's gonna go down i'll go up i was thinking you always go up so i'll give you a break (laughs) bye everyone